story goes, there's a couple parked on Lover's Lane. Uh, I'm sure they're having a good time or whatever. And then the radio goes off, which, I don't know, I guess that got them in the mood listening to the radio, but I personally don't like it. And uh, it says that there's a madman with a hook hand escaped from some, like, institution. So the girl's super uncomfortable. She's like, this ruined everything. Like, we have to go. Like, let's, let's get the hell out of here. Who knows where he is? And the boy, he, he doesn't like this idea. He's like, why would why would we leave? Like, this is just getting good. It's warm in here. The windows are fogged up. Like, what the hell? <laughs> so he's super mad, but he's like, okay, fine. Takes her home. On the way home, he realized, okay, maybe I was a jerk. Like, I'm not going to get a second try if I continue acting this way. So he's like, he parks and goes around to, to open her door. And there's a bloody hook that's been disconnected from an arm hanging on her door handle. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus with my dad to go to Dallas. One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, my dad came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. Hi, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, and what our facts and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. This week, we're taking a look at the poster child of urban legends, The Hook. And of course, we want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners. We love having so many listeners. We can't believe the great response that we've gotten. Oh, and we, we have a new mic. We have a new mic. Black Pete brought it to us. Just kidding. Black Pete doesn't bring presents. We had to go away with Black Pete for a long weekend to get this mic. We're not going to go into that right now. No, we don't have time. But if you could please take a minute to write reviews and to rate our podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it. And you can always find us on Twitter at Just a Story Pod, and we would love to hear from you. Any legends that you're interested in hearing more about or that you've always been curious to find the origins of, we'd be happy to take a look at, and we look forward very much to hearing from all of you. So back to The Hook. This is a great story. It is a great story. This has been featured in, like, movies and books, and I know what you did last summer. I still know what you did last summer. Oh, you're right. There's a sequel. There's right. probably five sequels. Probably. I don't know what they, what clever, like, adverb they put in after that. Like, I really still know what you did last summer. I'm not kidding. I still know what you did last summer. It was also in the movie Urban Legend, appropriately enough, the oft-forgotten 2000s horror flick countless other made for tv business so when did people start telling this story so folklorists have studied the story a lot because it is a very well known and widely circulated urban legend and according to most scholars they believe that the first appearances of the story were in the 50s the united states however in november of 1960 some generous soul with a bleeding heart and sincere concern for the teenagers of 
the country, wrote in to one Dear Abby and told the story and said, be on the lookout for the man with a hook. And after that, it became part of the zeitgeist. It was just in the cultural consciousness, and it seemed like everyone had heard it. So this is definitely a story I heard growing up. I heard it too, but it was never told correctly, and I never got it. People would like leave out that the man had a hook on his hand, and then they'd be like, and there was a hook hanging from the door. I'd be like, what does the hook have to do with anything? Or they would fail to mention that the radio came on, and I'd be like, why did she want to leave? And So there are a lot of little contingencies that have to be met to get the point of the story across correctly. Right, there are problems with the story that lead it to be kind of unbelievable. A lot of these stories are stretches of the imagination to really believe what's going on but with this one why does this mental patient have a deadly hook for a hand that seems like something that would get confiscated along with your razor blades and did they let him keep it in the institution it's a very good question and if so that institution has terrible security and some policy problems that need to come under review another question that i've always kind of boggled my mind are what are the odds the guy shows up just as the broadcast is coming on the radio and why is he using the hook to open the door why doesn't he use his hand his not hook hand we assume he has a not hook hand if he has two hook hands you think that sort of thing would be mentioned right and then also the idea that they like drive away and don't notice that someone has just had an implement ripped from their body like they get there and there's like viscera hanging from the hook that was embedded in his arm but somehow as they're driving away they they don't hear like blood curdling scream he just goes ouch that's smarted (laughs) yikes but this has become just a poster child for urban legends it's such obvious fabrication that doesn't stop every little preteen and teenager from telling it for the last 50 or more years yeah sometimes the story takes place in texas sometimes it's in new york frequently it's in utah and as with all good urban legends it takes place in your hometown well, a lot of the tale types and like documented first-hand accounts that have been collected with most recently have taken place in Utah, and that's moved from the original sites, which were more often Texas and upstate New York. And I think that's interesting because it's still a very conservative culture, youth culture especially, because of the heavy influence of the Latter-day Saints in that area. So, Samantha... There's no way that some crazy guy was going around killing people while they were parked, making out, or at least trying to kill them with a deadly hook or some other wild, crazy instrument. Oh, but there so is a way. There so is a way, Jacob. That's where you're wrong. Even though this seems like complete and utter fiction, it's not. It's probably based on a series of attacks in Texarkana, Texas in 1946 that came to be known as the Moonlight Murders. The Moonlight Murders. What a great name. I know. They knew how to do back then. Um, they also called the killer the Phantom Killer. Was he a ghost? He might have been. He wore a white hood over his head with slits for eyes and a slit for his mouth and no other distinct markings. And the people that identified that were the first victims of the Phantom Killer. And they weren't killed. The first victims were Jimmy Hollis and Mary Leary. Uh, It was not exactly on a full moon, but it was fairly close. On February 23rd, in 1946 they were parked lover's lane um as you can assume things were getting hot and heavy they were 
quickly interrupted by someone reported that he was wearing a white mask with slits cut out for his eyes and mouth. The guy was hit with what can be assumed to be a lead pipe, which led to several skull fractures. Mary was pulled out of the car. She was chased and then sexually assaulted with the barrel of the Phantom's gun. You know, she said after this incident that she wished she had died instead of living with that memory. But she did run away after being chased, and eventually the Phantom Killer stopped following her. Right, but she kept running because she didn't know he'd stopped, which is horrifying. The whole ordeal is horrifying. The the attacks are in the name Moonlight Murders because they usually took place around a full moon. I mean, they were spaced about three weeks apart. So following that pattern, on March 24th, Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore, because this is 1946 in Texarkana, Texas, and what else could your name be, were also parked in a car on a lover's lane, and they were found shot in the car later. Both had been shot through the back of the head with a with a thirty two caliber bullet. They found a spot about twenty feet from the car that was saturated in blood. There was a blanket in the back of the car that also had blood on it and there was a thirty two caliber round in the blanket. They believed that suggested that Polly Ann had been taken from the car, assaulted and shot, and then put back in the car. They knew there had been foul play when they approached the car and saw congealed blood on the running boards, which is just a horrifying image to me. Right, so the next incident occurred about three weeks later, April 13th. We have another great Texas 50s name, Betty Jo Booker, and her beau, Paul Martin. Uh, They were also in their car. Betty Jo was a young girl that played saxophone, and she played in a local band, and they actually gigged around. After her gig... At the VFW, don't... At at the VFW. It was not like a bar hopping gig. Hey, the VFW can get rowdy. Right? Well, they've earned the right, sir. And so her high school friend, Paul, picked her up to bring her home. Normally, she was brought home by one of the band members, one of the... Another man to make sure she got home safely. This time she hitched a ride with her friend. Later they were found with Martin, her beau, shot four times away from the car, and he apparently had tried to escape. Betty Jo was actually found two miles away. She was shot, she was fully clothed, and had her hand in her pocket. Obviously staged. Yes, it's very odd staging. The car was later found empty near Spring Lake Park, uh, with the keys still in the ignition. They also found thirty-two caliber shells, which matched the previous killing. Uh, and later, they did find her saxophone, like six months later, under some brush, which is just a very odd detail you, you to You have to case. wonder if the killer went back and placed it there after the murders began to get so much publicity, or if it, was, it had been there all along and it was just missed. Anyway, that always strikes me as odd. The car was discovered at Spring Lake Park, and there's another interesting detail that we will come back to about Spring Lake Park. Yes. Final incident occurred on May 3rd, and it involved a married couple named Virgil and Katie Starks. They were at home in their ranch house. So that's very different than the other three. It is remarkably different from the other three, and in that case, a different gun was used as well. As I've researched this personally, I've always felt like this was such an outlier in the Moonlight Murders. Nothing about it seems right to me, but it's pretty firmly attributed to the Phantom Killer by all accounts, and you know the official standing on it is that it was committed by the same person. I assume that he wore the mask, 
You know, I didn't see any details about that. I mean, it did take place in that few weeks after the last killing. But what happened? So this is odd from the get. Virgil is in his home. He's sitting about three feet from a window. And shots are fired through the glass. The window is closed. And he's shot in the back of the head. Katie comes in because she believes he's dropped a glass or done something stupid. And sees him try to stand up. He staggers and falls over, and he's obviously bleeding. At that point, she tries to use the phone to call for help, but she is also shot through the same window, twice in the face, but manages to escape and run to the home of a neighbor, who comes out, fires a gun in the air, and people accumulate on the lawn, as you do when someone fires a gun in the air in 1950s Texas. It's Texas. They got a posse together. There's a posse, as there should be. As I said, this was... A very different case, and remarkably, the killer used a different gun. Which, if you know anything about serial killers, that's really outstandingly strange. Because normally, every part of the ritual is so fetishized and so ritualized that they compulsively hold on to it. Right, so lots of things are off in this case. Right, but there wasn't that, that body of knowledge that the Behavioral Sciences Unit of the FBI really created. There wasn't that sort of... Uh, they didn't have the the data. I mean, this is a very... The term serial killer didn't exist yet. Right. The, the FBI behavioral unit was not until the 80s, right? Right. So, I mean, this is years... This is all with the benefit of hindsight that I'm saying this. I was not there at the time, obviously. Or I would have put my two cents in. No. <laughs> so this is sort of outstanding in that respect. It's very odd that he would deviate from couple in the car. Very odd that he would use a different gun. Very odd that he was not in close contact with his victims. But anyway, this is the fourth in the string of murders. So there was a huge investigation with this. Even the Texas Rangers were called in to try to help find the killer. And they brought in bloodhounds from Hope, Arkansas. This story would not be complete without that. No. But with this, did the Bloodhounds and the Texas Rangers, I assume Walker, Texas Ranger, was there? He was not there. Oh. Well, did Walker, Texas Ranger, and the Bloodhounds find anybody? All the King's Rangers and all the King's Bloodhounds could not put them back together again. So there was no official arrest in the case, and it still remains unsolved at this point. However, there were two very promising suspects. Right. One person did confess to it. H.P. Duty Tennyson. He was a University of Arkansas student, and he actually committed suicide. And in his suicide note, he confessed to the killing. But not all of them. Right, true. So he kind of left this very cryptic note saying, The opening to my box will be found in the following few lines. In a tube of paper is found, rolls on colors, and it is dry and sound. The head removes, the tail will turn, and inside is the sheet you yearn. Two bees mean a lot when they are together. These clues should lead you to it. And this was a cryptic clue leading to a lockbox. Where was it found? The clue was found in a fountain pen. With a poison tip. Of course. Because he did kill himself with mercury cyanide. This guy sounds like an Edgar Allan Poe character. Very macabre. In the lockbox, they found a viewmaster with pictures of Mexico. Obviously. And also a long letter. And in it, he talks about his family, what he wants to leave to his family. But he also confesses to the killings, but not all of them. 
He says he committed two double murders. He said, and to quote, why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night, and killed Mr. Starks and tried to get Miss Starks. You wouldn't have guessed it. I did it when Mother was either out or asleep, and no one saw me do it. For the guns, I disassembled them and discarded them in different places. So with that, he was a top suspect, except that his friends came out later with an alibi that they'd been with him during that time period. And there's no way that he could have killed these people. I do think it's interesting. I, I really do think you could attribute the first two attacks to one person and the second two to a copycat. Because the staging at the third murder is remarkably different. And there were elements that seemed to be missing. All four really had things that didn't all line up. Mm-hmm. There was an M.O. there, but it wasn't as strict as you see with some serial killers. Right. He seems disorganized, which would indicate a young person, in my opinion. And the first one was very impulsive. He didn't kill them. He let them go. The second one seems to have been the most thoroughly planned. The third was the most elaborate, with the staging and the dressing and the moving of the body and the parking of the car and leaving the keys in the ignition. And then the fourth was just crazy. So after this, it kind of discredited if Mr. Duty Tennyson did this. I think he may have done himself in because he was called Duty Tennyson. <laughs> Be a good reason. Don't name your child Duty. There was another suspect. His name was Yule Sweeney. He was a local car thief. He was convicted of car theft and imprisoned on that charge. His wife, Peggy, a former prostitute, confessed in great detail but would not go on the record, would not sign her confession. She knew details of the murder that hadn't been released to the public, which made police very interested in Yule. When a cop came to arrest him for the car theft, he said, Don't shoot me. And the cop said, I wouldn't shoot you for stealing cars. And Sweeney replied, Don't play games with me, mister. You want me for more than stealing cars. That's very incriminating. One would think. He never confessed. He never confessed, even though he was incarcerated for the rest of his life. Uh, he ended up dying a state-run nursing home in 1994. So he, you know, maintained his innocence all of his days. Yeah, the people that uh, are still looking into this kind of think he is the one that did it. Yeah, I mean, he is the, the favored suspect among experts. So this just hit the presses. Everyone was talking about this in the 40s. Yes. And in the 70s, they made a wonderful movie. It was the first slasher movie. That's right. Halloween sometimes is given that title, but really, this movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Predated Halloween by two years. And it was shot in this kind of documentary style. It said... Only the names have been changed. And it would have, like, put the dates up. It was kind of forgotten, I think. I think it's, like, in the 100 horror movies you have to see before you die or anything like that. But it was filmed on location in Texarkana. And it's still remembered in Texarkana. Oh, yes. As we mentioned before, there's one more thing we need to tell you about Spring Lake Park. Every year in October, they put up a big screen and invite all the townsfolk out for a good old time watching that classic slasher film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. So bring your families out for this wholesome event. Right, on location, where the murder took place. Right, you can see the place these people died. Isn't that festive and fun? Have to love it. Oh, Texas. Now this is by far 
not the only Lover's Lane killing. Not even a little, unfortunately. So there is the Zodiac Killer, who was active in the San Francisco Bay Area in the 70s. He would attack people in Lover's Lanes. And, of course, Son of Sam. Yeah, that one's in New York in the 70s as well. Remember Newman had Son of Sam's mailbag. <laughs> no, I didn't remember that. <laughs> we will have a Seinfeld reference in every episode. It's a goal. It's a goal. We can dream. Yes, Son of Sam. Both of those were cryptic. They sent letters to press, letters to authorities. They played very much cat and mouse games. And you have to wonder if slasher movies and that had any impact on them. I mean, I wonder... This did all come about at the same time. This right. is the 70s. Serial killers were almost like in style. Yeah, unfortunately, that's very true. And that's definitely when it came into public consciousness. And the Behavioral Sciences Unit was founded you know, years later to combat the problem. It was viewed as an epidemic at that time. But my personal favorite, and we're not going to be able to go into all the detail of this because it is a long and winding road, it does not lead to anyone's door. It's this case called the Monster of Florence. Ooh, that's another great killer name. It's the maybe the best. So in Italy, between the years of 1968 and 1985, there was a killer who was targeting lovers in their cars. And he was actually trying to interrupt them mid-coitus and would come at them and kill them. It was a dark and twisty crime and he was like cutting out women's vaginas and severing breasts and assaulting them with with grapevines because that's what you do in Italy. The crime is heinous. The crime is awful. It's still unsolved. The investigation is just massive and insane and they're still looking for him. Active. But when I was reading about this, the thing that struck me was this sort of cultural phenomenon that was happening during this time in Italy. Young people usually stayed at home with their parents until they married. So lovers' lanes were sort of a necessity. And because of the prevalence of people going and hiding away in vineyards and whatnot, there was a little cottage industry that sprang up. Peeping toms were a common problem. And there were people that knew the peeping toms were coming that were not the lovers in the cars that would do things like sell binoculars or offer to be hired out as a guide to take them to show them where the good cars would park. I always want to know what a good car is. Good cars are expensive cars with attractive people in them. But is it like a good car? Like a really nice car? No, it's a good couple. Or is it the good it's the good looking people? It's the good looking people. So Usually they go together. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> All right, so for more information on this, we have the great book, The Monster of Florence. Yes. It's only 368 pages. It's a breeze. It's really good. So let's just pause. Go read that. Are you done? It was quick, right? Quick read. We listened to the audiobook in our Christmas driving. It was, it was very festive. It was very festive. My child asked me what murder meant. That's not true. No, <laughs> he knows what murder means. The book is by Douglas Preston. With? Mario Spezzi. He was a reporter that followed the case from the first incident through its completion and is still researching it today. And at times was thought to be the killer. Bum, bum, bum. The audiobook has this great Itali- like Italian dialect when the Italians speak. Like, it's not annoying. I normally don't like it when they do voices, but this, I have to say, is quite enjoyable. I recommend you read it with some fava beans and a nice candy. 
So this story, The Hook, and really its origins even, touch on a lot of big themes that you see in folklore in general. Right. This has more of a fairy tale feel to it than about 90% of urban legends. In my opinion, I think that it touches on themes of like gender roles and chastity and like sort of that mythical boogeyman figure and mystical salvation through uh, virtue that I mean you even see in like saint martyr stories. It's got a lot going on that creates a tie to the fairy tale folklore genre. We've spoken a little bit about its ties to classical fairy tales. A lot of the fairy tales that you're familiar with from things like, I don't know, Disney, actually evolved as stories about protecting chastity, protecting virtue, crossing the threshold of loss of virginity, female competition, a lot of gender and sex stuff. And I think that's because people were uncomfortable talking about gender and sex, and so they created these parables to talk about the things that they couldn't talk about in polite company and sort of instill these virtues in children without expressly talking about the topic. So this tackled that fear of teen sexuality, which still exists today. Yes, absolutely. And with the rise of car culture in the 50s, There was a brand new fear of teen sexuality because they now had a way to get away from chaperones. All right, there was that mobile bedroom. Dun, dun, dun. I think it's bounce. You're right. It was that. Also, I'm sure this just grew in popularity as the summer of love and the opening up of sexuality in the 60s. Between the cars and birth control, there was no keeping your daughters chaste anymore. And you needed a good story with a good boogeyman to make sure that they were going to guard their chastity. So, you know, one thing that was interesting that I read from Ellis, who is a very important folklorist that does a lot of research on urban legends, was he noted that this is often told by girls at that 10 to 13-year-old age range that sleepover story time and it was pre-courtship time warning these girls about these evil boys right they only want one thing it's true i know so when when did you hear this story i think i heard it when i was about like i was in middle school i think so about then and like I said, I think I don't think I ever heard it told appropriately, which could explain my blatant disregard for fear of man men with hook hands. But in, in boys, it's told a little later. It's told in that teenage time, fourteen to seventeen year olds. Whenever, in theory, they are trying to get their hooks into a girl. I like your pun there, sir. And it almost dared the boys to confront their sexuality to confront that this was happening that they were going to try to bring those girls out and try to like I say kind of get their hooks in them and almost dared them to do it mm-hmm. another thing that i thought was interesting is the story is usually told in groups of all girls or groups of all boys it's not a mixed company story and i think it's because the takeaway is so different for the two groups with girls it's like be careful with boys it's like court the danger So Dundies, another important folklorist, talked about this tale demonstrating your male and female norms or societal norms. You know, with the male hoping to seduce. He's that sexual maniac. And he's what's kind of mentioned by society or the radio. Right. Radio is functioning as the voice of society. Exactly. 
And with the female, you know, she's trying to preserve her honor. She's persuading her date or demanding that her date drive off. Get, get the hell out of here. Quit what you're doing. And in that, she's persuading him to avoid danger, which would be the sexual act, and return home completely intact. Yeah, that's a gross word there. Thematically, the couple is spared only because of the girl's insistence that they not go through with the sex act. And preserving chastity becomes directly linked with preserving life. And another great thing that Dundee's mentions, and I think it's kind of obvious, is the Freudian symbolism in the legend. I'm going to let you take a stab at that one, Sam. Okay, well, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, and this is not one of those times. Dundee's Freudian analysis of this particular tale is a fairly well-known text, but he says that the hook is a phallic image and that it's attempting to penetrate the car, but if it's a phallus, the girl, and the story ends with castration, the removal of the hook or the removal of the phallus. Ow. You'd hear someone scream, I'm sorry. Ouch, that's smarts. So, as you're talking about the phallic symbolism in the hook, this is... Part of what makes the story so fantastical is the idea that this assailant has this weapon and that he's using it in an unnatural way and that it's standing in for the act of penetration. And if you look at the story of the Moonlight Murders, the first assault actually has the female victim being assaulted by a foreign object that is standing in for a phallus. Right, and we really don't know what happened the next two times. No, I think that it sort of lends a weird element of credibility to this legend that doesn't seem to be there on the surface. So in this interpretation, you see that by the girl standing up for herself, the hook gets caught on the door handle without penetrating or opening the door. And that is what saves them, uh, delivers them from evil as it were. It seems for millennia that people have been trying to persuade their children and to convince them of the evils of premarital sex. I mean, this goes from ancient times all the way to now with your abstinence-only education and your sex is bad, sex is bad. Oh, and the dances where the dads go with the daughters? Chastity dances. Yeah. Mm, so just sketchy. It is. Yeah, I don't like the whole, like, fathers of the guardians of their daughter's chastity thing. It just creeps me out. But anyway, yeah, so this is an old one. This is something that we have been against and opposed to since recorded history was, you know, recorded. In Islamic cultures, the name of the sin, formally, is fornication. Fornication is the sex act that takes place outside of marriage between a consenting man and a consenting woman. Generally, that is the pre-marriage time. It's not usually between um, married people. That's adultery, which is a much bigger deal because that's like stealing someone else's property, and that's like doubly not cool. You would not steal someone else's cow. You would not steal someone else's wife. Correct. Same, same. Same, same. So, in Islamic culture, there was a set punishment for fornication because it is a sin against Allah under Sharia law. Each fornicator, a man and a woman, are both given 100 lashes. That would hurt, too. Like having a hook ripped out of your hand. So they're each given 100 lashes. Women really can't accuse men. Uh, Usually it's like found out if there's a pregnancy as a result. If there's an accusation, the act of penetration has to have been witnessed by four men of upstanding character in the Muslim community. That sounds like a party. Right? 
So that's been going on a while. That's on the books. But in Puritan society, there were pretty awful punishments for fornication as well. Each participant in an act of fornication was given usually two public whippings. And I'm guessing one was a matinee and one was with the dinner show. I don't know why, too, but that's what it was. Make sure everyone gets a good view. Yeah, I don't think it was like two whippings as in popped two times. I think it was like two showings. They were also put in stocks. They were fined, especially if the union resulted in pregnancy. (laughs) The fines might be seen as being similar to child support. I think that they were more fair on the books than they were in enforcement. In Puritan society, you could also be punished for propositioning someone. It's like, hey, baby, you want to go behind the woodpile? Yes, that would get you time in the stocks. It would get you a whipping. It would get you fined. But that, of course, depended on the severity of the proposition. So no Puritan tender. No Puritan tender. Oh, my God, now I want to make Puritan tender. (laughs) Coming soon from the Just a Story podcast, Inc. Puritan tender, where you can meet goody patients... Swipe left. Look for the girls with the scarlet letter. They're more fun. That was a real thing, by the way. When I was reading about Puritan punishment for sexuality, they really did make people who committed adultery wear scarlet letters. That was not fiction. You know, we've already given you one reading assignment for this episode, but The Scarlet Letter is one of the best books I had to read in high school. Yeah, it's one that you will actually think back on and go, that wasn't torture for me. For her, it was, not for me. But Nathaniel Hawthorne's good and dark. Like, I think he gets a rap as like being just a boring early American writer that you have to read. But oh my God, he's dark and twisty. Right, he's in the same school with Poe. I agree. Yes. But I mean, not as dark as Poe. Yeah, kind of. No one is as dark as Poe. <laughs> okay, cause he, just because he had the look, that's not fair. <laughs> There's so much more than just the look. <laughs> okay, the necrophilia, the ravens. Okay, fine. So all of these incidents happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is America. Sure, we were based on these great Puritan principles, but nothing like this is happening here. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, unless you count the honor killings. Honor killings? Yeah. So in 2008, two girls, Amina Saeed and her sister Sarah, were shot on New Year's Day. Their bodies were left in a cab in the parking lot, and it turns out that they were murdered by their own father. Why did their father murder them? They had boyfriends. Why would that be such a problem? Well, their father was a very strict and fundamental believer in Islam. And he had a major problem with his daughters courting men that he had not approved of. He had actually signed the daughters up to be married. Amina was to be married to a man who was about 50 years old. He lived in Egypt. Um, She went to meet him and called her mother, begging to come home. These girls were, for all intents and purposes, very westernized. They grew up in Texas. There was just such a clash between their way of life and what their father believed was appropriate that he killed the two girls. And this is another example. It reminds me of what we talked about in the Satanic Panic episode. Mm -hmm of the Christian mothers killing their children kind of based on their radical... I don't think that Islam is the culprit here, just to be clear. I believe it's the misinterpretation of uh, moral responsibility. Their father couldn't handle the women that they were becoming, and he believed it was his responsibility to assure that they did not continue down that path in any means necessary. Right, and that was to send them to Allah as the other... Women mothers were sending their children to heaven. Yes. To protect them. Most sickeningly of all, this man, Yasser Saeed, has evaded authorities since this attack was perpetrated in 2008. 
He is on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, and there's a $100,000 reward for him if you happen to know where he is. Bonus first. We'll put the tip in, and we'll make sure you get the money. It's a $100 reward? Yeah, $100. No. Yeah. There was a documentary made about this event called The Price of Honor, which has won innumerable awards. It's presented at Sundance, and I believe you can view the film online if you're interested in doing so. But it's a very grisly case, and as I was reading this and thinking about it, I thought it was so interesting that the parents who are warning the children against the dangers of sexuality can become the crazy maniac that's threatening their lives. But it's just a story, right? Yeah. It's just a story. 